This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Hall of Famer Alan Fanica, and you're listening to Ira and Clark on the iTest for Two. Welcome back to another edition of the Eye Test for Two. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And we are both Hall of Fame voters, as you should know by now. Joined today, as we always are, by our Hall of Fame producer, Mr. Ian Glendon. Now, Ian, as you should also know, is a lifelong Patriots fan. So we lined up a special guest for him today, and that's former New England director and vice president of player personnel, Scott Pioli, who later became the general manager in Kansas City, and assistant GM with the Atlanta Falcons. Now, Ian, full disclosure here, the first time I ever met Scott was back in 2009. Hope he remembers this, his first year in Kansas City. And we spent the greater part of an hour and a half interview on an infernal day in St. Joseph, Missouri, where the Chiefs play. It was just brutal. It was hot, like 95, 90% humidity. Talking not about the NFL, not about the Chiefs, the AFC West, or the New England Patriots. No, we were talking about music, particularly <laughs> classic rock that he and I love. Now, Scott was talking to me about Pink Floyd and Springsteen, and I was talking to him about the Beatles, the Who, and Todd Rundgren. Scott, those were the days. Do you remember that day? I absolutely do, Clark. Thanks for having me. Ira, great to be with you. And Ian, great to be with you as well. This is I'm really looking forward to this, guys. Yeah, that was a great day, Clark. It was. It really was. And it's uh, it was one of those moments, you know, as you know, in my role, I, I was never good at or never really wanting to be involved in interviews for fear of divulging information that wouldn't have been good for the program. Right. And then we got together and all we talked for, about music forever. It was awesome. You know why? You had 60s on six, I think, playing in the background. And I went, whoa, you listen to that? You go, yeah, I love it. And that proceeded to launch us into an hour interview about the Beatles, the Pink Floyd, what other Bruce Springsteen, what albums he liked, why Peter King didn't like The River. Are you kidding me? I know. Unbelievable. I think he said too dark for me. Come on, Peter. You're like too good then, man. (laughs) Oh my God. It's my wife's favorite album. Anyway, um, Scott, as I mentioned, you were the director and later the vice president player personnel with the New England Patriots. And you were there for three Super Bowls, I think. Um, and, um, and one loss, yes. And, and, yeah. And, uh, and you were very, very successful as that team was. In fact, you were so successful in 2009. ESPN named you the personnel man of the decade, saying, quote, no one does a better job of scouting their own team than Scott Pioli. Now, in those days, I don't think you did a lot of free agency with the Patriots. You had Tom Brady. I know you did a Dalius Thomas in 2007, but you didn't spend a lot of money on free agents. But they did in the past couple of weeks, so they certainly are doing it in this offseason. As, as somebody who's been in that organization, are you befuddled by what's going on in terms of the, the spending on free agents? And how do you explain 
really what's going on there now, because I think it was something like 163 million in guaranteed money, which to me is so atypical. Yeah. You know, Clark, it's interesting. So I, I think you said something early is the, the fact that they spent a lot of money in free agency is certainly atypical. Um, but going back retrospectively, what people don't realize, a large part of those championships the core of that championship, first championship team, we built through free agency. But again, you made a clear distinction there in saying that, you know, that we didn't spend a lot of money. People don't realize this. In 2001, that offseason prior to 2001, we signed 23 free agent players. The key was that we spent only $2.5 million right. in signing bonuses. And we built a lot of contracts where we got players that were very good football players, hadn't had a lot of playing time. We thought they would fit the system. We built incentive-laden contracts, and those players succeeded. We succeeded. So we, you know, using free agency and pro personnel was an important part. But you're right in, in the fact that, um, that the, the way they did it this year was very different. They yeah. went – into free agency, but it was the amount of money that they spent. And, you know, in, in from what I understand, though, and looking at that, I think it was interesting because it's it was atypical, yes. But what was very typical was that the Patriots preyed upon, P-R-E-Y, preyed upon what was probably a market inefficiency in the sense that here they were a team with a lot of cap space, finally, and a league that didn't have a lot of cap space. So from a competitive standpoint, they saw the rest of the league at a disadvantage and they jumped on opportunity. So um, in one way, again, what they did was very Patriot-like. In another way, spending that much money uh, was very different. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because typically to me, you guys would wait, I'm talking about New England, would wait out the first wave yes. and come in and get niche players that fit in a particular uh, place for you guys. And they were low budget players, but they fit perfectly in there and it worked. Uh, and this to me was a little bit different. I mean, right off the bat, they go for the two best or the two highest priced tight ends. And we had Andrew Brandon here a couple of weeks ago when, what is that all about? I don't understand that. I mean, he goes, most teams don't spend on tight ends except for new England. They spent yeah. for the two the highest priced tight ends. Yeah. The, the thing about that though, again, talking about this retrospectively, that was, always interesting one of the things i didn't like about the way that we spent was that the in spending the type of money we did and signing the players that we did who weren't star power players they weren't household names unfortunately to me i felt that that always did a complete disservice to the players we get those players that we had even though we got them at a good price we got them before they became stars, before they came good, became good. They were ascending. Mike Vrabel was one heck of a player. Yeah. Roman Pfeiffer was a terrific player. You know, Antoine Smith came in and rushed for almost 1,200 yards for us. Now, so to me, because what, what I've never really liked a whole lot is publicly players that don't, don't sign for big contracts are perceived as not being good players. And I don't think that's accurate, nor do I think it's fair. That's just what they end up signing for because there are players that come in and then flourish. You know, one of the things we had there was a true meritocracy where we told players, listen, there's going to be an opportunity. You come in, take the lower base because we can't afford it from a cap standpoint. But if you play, you will get paid additional in, in incentive. If you play and we pay and we win, we will pay you even more because we started putting additional incentives in on playoff wins, double digit wins, et cetera. Right. 
Uh, Scott, we do our research on this show, Mr. Pioli. Uh, uh -oh. Number uh -oh. one. I wasn't there, Ira. <laughs> number one. Number one. You have a birthday tomorrow, Mr. Oh. Pioli. Um, and I will preface that by saying today, a classic rocker, Mr. P, turned 76. His nickname is slow hand eric clapton. and his name eric is clapton. eric clapton so absolutely you can't you can't bust me on rock and roll trivia outstanding <laughs> scott, the only three-time member of the rock and roll hall of fame um and scott do you feel 56 you're gonna be 56 tomorrow my friend wow um uh no but i'm sure i look it um <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't oh it's funny i was having this conversation uh, just the other day, it, it's funny how when you're younger and you see older people like your parents or other older people young and they say, well, I feel so young and you just kind of snicker. Well, I'm one. I'm that dude right now. Right. And and, and I just know um, I don't feel this old, but I, mentally, but physically. Yeah, there, there's some mileage on this. So. Well, uh, <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. All right. Uh, Scott, you, do, you know the, do you know the three groups that Eric Clapton is actually a Hall of Fame member of? Well, uh, Yardbirds, uh, Cream, and then um, Clapton, the solo artist, Mr. Pioli. That's okay. what I think. I, you're probably right, because I was wondering whether it was the Yardbirds or Derek and the Dominoes. It was Yardbirds, well, I think. It I, yeah, it was the R birds, but uh, I, I believe Layla is my favorite album, Scott. My favorite oh, album of all. See? Here uh, we go again. Here we go again. You got an hour, Scott. <laughs> now, uh, Scott, your first draft pick as a member of the Patriots was guard Adrian Clem, Mr. Piola, and you didn't have a first round pick. You didn't have one. And um, oh, yeah, we did. Uh, we Whoa. traded that for Belichick. That was a pretty good pick. <laughs> Not too bad. Uh, <laughs> Scott, I, I, I want to ask you about um, in 2001, Scott, you're one and three. You're one and three. Yeah. And, you, you know, you're coming off a bad uh, first year. Oh, yeah. And I want to ask you about this game against the Chargers, Scott. It was at home. You're down 26-16. There's like five minutes left. I think you had a punt you know, returned, you, they, it, everything was going wrong. And you were about to be one and four. And here comes this Brady kid, Scott, here he comes. Hmm. And you win it in overtime, you go 12 and two the rest of the way. Was, was that a turning point game, Scott, that game against the Chargers? Absolutely. It, it was a turning point in, you know, I don't think the team really knew. No one knew what we had in Tommy, right? And 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 we thought we had a player that was going to develop into a good starting quarterback. I mean, we really did. But I think what happened was that our team really started to believe. and said, wow, this kid's pretty good. You know, they loved his work ethic. They loved his work habits. They saw him for the last year plus every day in Foxborough, every night in Foxborough doing extra and that game, when he did um, what he had to do, um, and he did it well, right? He, he, did a, he did a terrific job. I think that everyone believed that we were going to have a chance when he was on the field, as long as that – and again, this is early in his career, and, and the team knew and Tommy knew that he was going to need a lot of support, not only with the, his team on offense, but the help from special teams and defense. Because, you know, even though Tommy led us to that Super Bowl that year – 
the defense played incredibly well, especially opportunistic in creating turnovers and key turnovers. We're with Scott Pioli on the eye test for two. And Scott, um, that leads me to an obvious question. In 2000, as I mentioned, uh, you were the assistant director of player personnel. <clears throat> so you must have been in that room when in the sixth round with a 199th pick, someone said, hey, it's quarterback from Michigan. Let's take him. Can you take us inside that room and, and tell us what the conversation was about taking Tom Brady and what you knew about him? Well, here, here's what I do know is the um... – I had actually, oddly enough, seen him the year before in a very unremarkable, unspectacular game against Syracuse up in the Carrier Dome. Mm -hmm. um, so I had, I had seen him play. Um, that, that was back in the 99 season. So, but, you know, we had a list of quarterbacks that we want to start looking at. We were looking at a, a, a certain type of quarterback. We weren't going to draft a, a quarterback at, at the top. We knew that. But Dick Rabine, um, who had, who unfortunately passed away, um, had gone out to work him out. Dick liked him. Charlie liked him. Bill liked him. Bobby Greer liked him. Um, Bobby Greer, who was the general manager at the time, people don't remember, you know, when Bill and I got there, um, I was the assistant director of player personnel, but, um, Bobby was the general manager and there was this, you know, there was this dynamic we were all trying to deal with and work through working as a collective and making sure um, we were working on the greater good. And uh, Ernie Adams liked him. So there was a group of us that liked him. And, and the, the one thing I remember distinctly, though, was where we had Brady rated and ranked, um, you, you know, you, you see draft boards and you see we set two different draft boards. One was the way you do it where vertically it's aligned by position and horizontally by grade. We also had a separate board where we would rank players. We were so detailed where, you know, rank every player against one another. And it was one through 50 in one column. The next column was 51 through a hundred. The next column was anyway. So Brady was in that mix. And as we started pulling, every time a player was picked, you pull the, the, a name off to tag off. Well, I think Brady's name came up with his group of players for the first time in the third round because of where we had him ranked. And the fact was, you know, when we took over the, you know, what we didn't need at that point in time was to push um, towards a draft need, right? You want to always find this right balance between best player available and need. At that time, we had... Drew Bledsoe, John Fries, and Michael Bishop on, on the roster. And um, the, we, we couldn't – I think we had 41 players or 42 players under contract, and we had to have 80 ready for camp. So there was going to be a lot of work done, and we had no cap space. So anyway, the point is we kept on – we talked about him initially in a group in the third round, a group in the fourth round, the fifth round. He is you know, far and away our highest-rated player, but we had these other positions of need. And then finally we get to the sixth round and we're all kind of looking at each other. And, and, you know, th there's a, a group of us in the, in the draft room and, and kiddingly, I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was Bucko Kilroy said, you know, is that kid even still alive right now? You know, why, you know, did, did, did he get arrested last night? Is he dead? You know, what's going on? I think, I think it was Bucko Kilroy said, and we just saw the value there as and he, we didn't think it was going to be this guy who won seven Super Bowls or that he'd come in and be what he was to the franchise. But we just said, OK, well, we're going to take him because he's just too much value at this point in time to keep passing up. Well, as you pointed out, 
you know, when you when you had him, he was, to your credit, the fourth quarterback, and Drew was the, the starter, and then he worked his way, obviously, through Drew's injury into the starting line for 2001. But by the end of that season, I remember being at the Super Bowl, and there's still a question of, are you going to start Bledsoe? Are you going to start Brady? No, they're going to start Brady. And the next year, I think you go 9-7, and seven, and because of the tiebreaker, the Jets go to the playoffs. You don't. Right. And then the following year, everyone knows, 2003, 2004, you go to the Super Bowls. But when did you know that you had something special in Tom Brady? Because as you pointed out, the defense carried that team early with, with yeah. Brady. But at some point, there was a transformation where suddenly people went, whoa, this guy is better than the average bear. He, he's, I love that saying, better than the average bear. That's a great saying. You know, he, you know here's what I'll say. There were different markers, Clark and Ira, of when we saw – him and saying and where we went ha uh-uh, we got something here and going back the first one was you know in that 2000 season again it's interesting and i don't say this disrespectfully but a lot of people don't pay attention to the true history of of, of what that team was built on and, and that franchise but in 2000 Again, there were times during the 2000 season from a salary cap standpoint, we couldn't even keep 53 players on the roster. There was a point in time in the season where we had 51 players on the roster and we didn't have a complete practice squad. And what we did have that entire season was four quarterbacks on our roster. We carried four quarterbacks the entire season. So we knew pretty early on that we had a player that we felt pretty good about and we felt that – um, because of his work ethic and his work habits and because of Bill's developmental program and Bill's developmental skills and Dick Rabine and Charlie Weiss and that whole group of people, we thought we had a chance. So that was the first moment, right, where we, we kept him, kept four quarterbacks, and we didn't even have 53 players on the roster. Um, and teams, as we know, no one keeps four quarterbacks on yeah, the roster. Right. Very few keep three. Most keep two. Anyway, so Clark, I don't know that – that first year when he started playing in 2001, when he started, to me, it was after that disastrous Broncos game, quite honestly. He was terrible in a Broncos game in that loss. He came back, not out of control, but focused, and we started winning games, and he was just so um, matter-of-factly and just so um, his approach to everything. It was some point in time where we thought we had something, Yet to me, it was that nine and seven season where I felt like, wow, we're really going to have something Mm -hmm. because he was so in tune to what his shortcomings were. Not only did he work on them, but he knew what to accentuate as the positive. And if the positive was throwing a lot of check down passes and high percentage passes rather than going down the field, he did that. Everything he did was about winning football games, which is everything that Bill did, everything that I did, everything Ernie Adams did. That was what the program was about. Scott, I, I don't know anybody that maybe experienced the bigger highs and bigger lows than, than you have realistically over the last 20 years. Scott, the Super Bowls, the Lombardi trophies with New England. But, Scott, the 07 season, the perfect year, the loss to the Giants. And then you're an assistant GM in Atlanta and a 28-3 lead over your guy Brady. Yeah, Scott, um, how tough was it to get over those two losses? I tell you, um, tough. I mean, really tough. And Ira, those are two, two very close to the lowest points in 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 my football life. Um, the 
but I, I do, people ask me which one was worse. And I, I got to say the, the, the loss to the giants in that super bowl and being 18 and one is definitely, was definitely tougher because people say, you know, we didn't just lose the super bowl. We lost history, you know, and, and in the Falcons loss to the, um, to the Patriots, we lost the Super Bowl. I mean, in epic fashion, unfortunately, both of those were epic losses. And the, the, the one that stings, though, again, to have possibly been 19-0 and 0 and lose that game, just that's historical. Um, and, and I loved that team. And the, the, 20, the 28 to 3 one, unfortunately, um, I felt that coming during the game. I'll never forget it. Halftime. Um, I got two things happened at halftime that really disturbed me. I knew how good number 12 was on the other side of the field. And in this booth, I was in there with a number of scouts and some other front office people watching the game. And it was almost celebratory at halftime. And someone like I was sitting down, I didn't engage. I kept my mouth shut and people were talking. It was having a good time. Someone slapped me on the back, said, come on, Scott, relax a little. And I remember being so angry, Ira. I was furious. I turned around and I said, you guys just don't get it. I said, that dude, number 12 on the other sideline is Freddy Krueger. He's <laughs> coming back. And we just better hope and pray that he doesn't come back all the way and get all of us. I'll never forget, you know, a couple of people <laughs> laughed. A couple of people, you know, were looking at me like, you, you know, you know, looking at me like, what a miserable human being. Can't you enjoy this? And I'm like, no, I'm not miserable. I'm a realist. And sure enough, he came back. But the other thing that happened at halftime was my dear friend, Rodney Harrison, is there at the game and sends me a text. He was texting me a couple times during the game. And at halftime, he um, sends me a text and is congratulatory. And he says, you know, hey, Scott, congratulations. Erica and I are leaving. You earned it. Congratulations. I just can't stand to watch this anymore. I was so angry at the text. I'm like, you <laughs> son of a gun. That's the kiss of death, Rodney. There it is right there. Me? But he was serious. He didn't want to watch the Patriots lose the Super Bowl. And he was congratulating me at halftime. And he and Erica, his wife, Erica, left. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, how could you do that? And I, uh, to this day, I tell him, you did that on purpose. You Unbelievable. did that on purpose. Unbelievable. <laughs> hey, Scott, you, you've had, um, you've been involved with so many draft successes, maybe in the later rounds too. But Scott, they, they don't all hit. And, and you know, that's rule number one. You're not going to hit them all. So Scott, with two decades behind you, what, what is the most common mistake pro scouts and NFL general managers make going into drafts? What, what is, what is the kiss of death there? Well, I, it, you know, there's a great question because there, there are multiple. One of them is um, I'm a big believer. I'm watching Miami right now. I'm watching the teams that collect currency. I think as part of the strategy is that if you start trading away too many picks, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And, and what I say that for is 
we, we all miss on a lot of draft picks. So the more picks you have, the more opportunity you have to get it right and to get good young players. If you start trading that currency away, you have less opportunities to, to actually hit it. So who, and I remember Parcells told me this. He says, be careful of the guys that love to trade away draft picks. Most of them that are trading away draft picks are afraid to draft. And they're afraid that the, uh, of the grade they're going to get because the fewer picks that people have are usually the teams and the GMs that get the highest draft grades. And uh, that, that always resonated with me. So I think one of the kisses can be um, on one cheek could be the, the lack of preparation of having currency to move up and down the board and to have this wide cast of opportunities. And I think sometimes, you know, people say that they're always going to draft the best player available or they're going to draft based on need. And I think there needs to be a thoughtful balance of those two things, right. Um, Of drafting the best player available and or need. But if you're in a position where you've got the best player available and, you know, and Tom Brady is, is your quarter, you know, a 28 year old Tom Brady is your quarterback and the best part trade out. Right. Use as many vehicles within the draft at your at your disposal. So to me, finding the right balance of drafting the best player available and need, because I think some of the biggest mistakes I've made uh, and been a part of was when I leaned far too heavily on need, because then you obsess about individuals and and trying to get to a certain place on the board rather than doing what's best for the greater good. Scott, one of your best draft picks was a guy named Richard Seymour, defensive mm. lineman. And Ira and I know him well because he's been a Hall of Fame finalist the last three years. He's been a top five, top 10 finalist the past two years. I think, and so would Ira, that he is a front runner for election to the Hall in 2022, but he isn't it yet. So I guess my question to you would be, What would you tell voters if you were presenting Richard Seymour to them as a candidate for the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Because one thing I know you're you're not big on is analytics and stats, and we aren't either. We think they can be helpful, but there are people in that room who live by those things. And Richard Seymour was a guy who moved up and down the line and played to that position, often not to stats. And yet I do think ultimately it's probably hurt him a little bit. But in the end, I do think he's going to make it. But again, that's a long way of saying, what would you tell voters to, to get him in? Well, first of all, Clark, I pray that he makes the Hall of Fame because he is so deserving. He's a Hall of Fame player and a Hall of Fame human being, in my, my opinion. And I, as you both know, that I care about the quality of a human being as much as I do uh, uh, the players. And Richard, um, I respect analytics. I, 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 I really do. I also think that we can't rely just on tape or just analytics. It's again, this blend of the two things um, that is so necessary. And, you know, you mentioned it, Clark, that, that Richard played defensive end. He played five technique. He played four technique. He played three technique. He played, you know, he played the nose. He yeah. played wherever he was needed to play for us to be the strongest defense. And at times, that was to his own personal detriment. And I would tell the Hall of Fame voters that. I would also explain to them a little bit about the scheme and the defense that he played in, which was up front, a two-gap defense. And when you're in a two-gap defense, you are controlling 
blockers on the line of scrimmage so other people can play better and make plays. And when we talk about the game of football, and, and this is what, you know, what I would say to Hall of Fame voters, when we talk about football, football is quite possibly the greatest game. I believe it is our greatest game. I believe because it is always about a greater good, not the individual. It's about 11 interdependent relationships, people working together whether they like one another or don't like one another, regardless of, uh, regard, you have to play together. And Richard Seymour embodied that. Those players at the Patriots embodied that. And I'm truthfully disappointed. There were some great players there that haven't gotten their due because they were such good teammates and because they were such great players on great teams, they don't get enough um, respect, quite honestly. And Richard Seymour embodies everything. Here's what I know. I remember talking to people from other teams and coaches from other teams who said, you have to game plan around Richard Seymour. You have to figure out every week how the heck you're going to block Richard Seymour. And to me, Richard Seymour's greatness isn't in his numbers. It's not in his, you know, the stats he produced. Everyone heard when he came out, he was drafted as a defensive end. And the mentality is most fans, most people that, that don't know all of the intricacies of the game, they see a, a, a four-man a, a four line with a defensive end and Lawrence Taylor, who's supposed to be coming off the edge, or, you know, or, or some great pass rusher. He was not an edge pass rusher. That's not the kind of defensive end he was, and it's not what he was asked to do. And to me, I, I, I get excited here, and I, I'm, I'm glad, but I'm not glad you asked the question, Clark, I'm so upset <laughs> on his behalf. Um, because he's, again, he's not only a Hall of Fame player, he is a Hall of Fame person. And he embodies everything that is good and right about football and everything that's good and right about the Pro Football Hall of Fame. One last question for me. We're running short on time here, but Rodney Harrison's another one. Yes. Rodney Harrison is a guy who's never been a Hall of Fame finalist, but might be at some time. And we have been prone to uh, electing safeties lately. I think there's something like 10 hour in the last five years, including the centennial yeah. class. What can you tell us about Rodney Harrison? Well, Rodney Harrison, I talked about Hall of Fame people. When I say that I love Rodney Harrison, I love Rodney Harrison and as a, as a person. And my respect for him as a football player and what a great football, he wasn't a good football player. He was a great football player. He was a championship football player and we won championships because of Rodney Harrison. And when it, and to the people that believe in the analytics, I begged them to go back and look at, I believe he was the first ever 40, 40 player that the national football league saw in terms of 40 sacks and 40 interceptions, I believe. Um, I, I could have that wrong, but he, um, if you want to look at analytics, you want to look at, um, he, he has the numbers, he has the sacks, he has the interceptions, he has the cause turnovers. And you talk to people that played him, you know, part of what, what carries with Rodney is, is unfortunately he played hard, man. And he played hard and he crossed the line sometimes clearly because he was fine, but he paid his debt in fines. But I'll tell you what, you talk to the people that had to play against Rodney Harrison, they'll tell you how great he was. Then you talk to his teammates and the people that shared a locker room and a building with him, they will tell you what a great champion he was in terms of preparation and accountability. And if there's one thing I can say about Rodney Harrison, um, his level of accountability to himself 
and to everybody else in that locker room. You talk about a, a man that spoke truth to power, meaning Bill and myself and the other leaders on that team. I'm telling you what, championship guy. And again, I can't say enough about Rodney Harris. Scott, last one for me quickly. Thanks so much for doing this, Scott. Um, Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold, Scott, what would you give up for him? And do you think he's still got a future? I do still think he has a future. You know, uh, you know, we've, I, I saw him interestingly coming out. I scouted, you know, it was great because USC and UCLA, one t- UCLA practiced early in the morning and USC practiced in the afternoon. So you could catch both schools on one scouting trip in one day. And in that morning, I saw Rosen. In the afternoon, I saw Darnold. And I remember coming out of those practices thinking to myself, Sam Darnold is going to be a good NFL quarterback and he's going to be a tremendous leader because his teammates loved him. Thought he had the tools. I had, thought he had the skills. Unfortunately, I don't think he's had a chance to develop properly and to develop fairly for his best to see. Um, do I think he can do it in this league? I absolutely do. I just hope he's still young enough. And I hope that he gets an opportunity to be in a good program and a good system with good, dependable people and players around him. So he, we can see what the best version of it of him is. Unfortunately, for a lot of reasons, I don't think we've, he was given a, an opportunity to, um, to develop. And, and I'll say this, I think, Again, those of us that are in the game, and and you guys know this, sometimes players ending up in the right situation, the right circumstances with the right staffs are able to develop. And then there's players whose careers get lost because they've just never been given the right opportunity. Thanks so much for the time. And you know what, Scott? Do me a favor, would you please? Would you vote for Todd Rundgren in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame vote? Please. Get him in. What's going on here? Hello, it's me. That's it. Scott, thanks so much. See you guys. Thank you. That was former NFL executive Scott Pioli and Ira. You vote for Todd Rundgren, would you please? Now, today, I vote for Todd Rundgren and Kate Bush every day. Every day. You know, Clark, I, I know a woman really sharp, really sharp, and all she would talk about when it came to music was Todd Rundgren. Yeah. She thought it all started with him and it all ended with him. He should be in as a producer and should be in as a solo artist. He should be in either one, but the fact that he does both of them, he should have been in a long, long time ago. And I always enjoy talking to Scott, uh, especially when he's talking about Hall of Fame candidates like Richard Seymour and Rodney Harrison. And I do think Seymour is going in next year. I think you do as well. You know, you got to give him credit, Clark. He's made a smooth transition to uh, media and he's a smooth, He's thoughtful, and over the years, he earned Bill Belichick's trust. That means something, Clark. When it comes to Richard Seymour, boy, is he passionate. Clark, he makes a great case. Uh, look out, Borges. You, you might have to bring him into the room next year to uh, supplement. He's very persuasive on Seymour, how he's more than his statistics. As far as Harrison, Clark, I'll just tell this quick story. When we had that centennial meeting in Canton and I was in a room with uh, with Bill Belichick for nine hours yeah. and I finally, you know, got him in the corner because uh, Gary Myers was wearing him out and I was waiting for my chance to finally try to get a quote about John Lynch from him because he tried to talk Lynch out of retirement in 2008 and wanted to make him a patriot. And Lynch went to training camp. He lasted a week or two and said, no, nah, I'm done. And so I finally corralled him. And I go, hey, I'm making the presentation for Lynch. He's been in there six times. He goes, Ira, I'd love to give you something on Lynch. But we got to get Rodney Harrison a gold jacket. And that is my goal right now. 
He was totally focused on Rodney Harrison. And um, he's a guy that uh, we got to get him back in the room, Clark. So hats off to Pioli. He was a heck of a guest. Well, Ian said to me, what does Bill Belichick know about personnel? He let Tom Brady go. Everybody <laughs> <laughs> must have loved that comment, though. Ira, you should know what that means. We do. <laughs> that means you That means you were somewhere, and you're about to tell us where, Mr. Judge. You are correct, sir. Uh, it's the L.A. Coliseum again. I'm going back to the L.A. Coliseum with the Chargers. This time it's October 17th, 1987, Sunday, during the strike year. You remember that, Ira, the strike replacement players? And these were replacement players. This was the last of the three games played with replacement players. Now it's near the end of the game, Chargers-Raiders. And it was the last game, of course, featuring replacement players. And the Raiders are driving for a touchdown. The Chargers always went up there and lost. So we figured, okay, you know, they're going to lose. We go down from the press box. And you know where the press box is, the LA Coliseum. You go through the stands. We go down through the stands with two minutes to go and get on the sidelines as the Raiders are coming our way. Now, the problem is you had to go through the Raider cheerleaders to get to the sidelines, a.k.a. football's fabulous females, so that maybe half of the media was actually watching the field at that point, (laughs) while the other half is turned around watching football's fabulous females. At that point, Vince Evans launches a sideline pass to Mr. Mervin Fernandez, Swervin Mervin, but he didn't catch it. Instead, Elvis Patterson, a.k.a. Toast, steps in front of Swervin Mervin and returns it 75 yards for the winning score with 18 seconds to go. That's part of the story. But the rest of it was when he got to the goal line, he didn't cross it. He just started going parallel to the goal line. And those who weren't watching football's fabulous females were saying, what is he doing? What he was doing was a smart move. He was running the clock because he was all alone there. So he just kept running the clock as he's going along the goal line and people going cross the goal line for God's sakes. We crossed it with 18 seconds ago. And you know what? Chargers won that game and they moved to four and one of the season. The next week, the union settled. They come back, the players come back and the Chargers then win their next four games with Dan Fouts, a quarterback, and some replacement players. I think Elvis Patterson stayed with the team. Some replacement players, but they became 8-1, and one, led the AFC West, and they're going to the playoffs, right? Uh, not so fast. They lost the last six games, and they became the Chargers <laughs> again, and that was it. But uh, and Denver went on to uh, win the division. I think that year, Denver Broncos went to the Super Bowl, too, with the Redskins. Hey, but- Clark, you know, the, you know the people who were screaming, what is that guy doing? Get in the end zone? Yeah. They were the people that had the charges laying four points. Get, <laughs> That's get the right. heck in the end zone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was a memorable game um, and a memorable player, Elvis Toast Patterson. Ira, final thoughts for this week? Quick one. And um, Ian knows this very well. Um, we learned again, Clark, not that we need another reminder. Be careful before you press the send button on Twitter, Clark. Latest victim. Carlton Davis, young Bucks cornerback, put out something about Asian Americans, you know, and used a slur and claim, and he deleted it quickly. But Clark, you can't delete it quickly before somebody has a portrait of what you put on the screen. Then he said he didn't think it was offensive. It meant something else. Nobody's buying it. So Clark, 
the Bucks had to put out an apology yesterday, which uh, was appropriate. Right. And we learn again, Clark, be careful what you're doing on social media. Absolutely. And that's one reason many people stay off of social media. One last thought for me, Ira, I got my second vaccination this week on Wednesday. And I know you've gotten two vaccinations. I had some repercussions from it. Not big. I mean, not big at all. But we know somebody who's with us today who's going to get his vaccination. Ian, when is it? This week? Next week? This Friday. Friday morning. I got my appointment at uh, 11 or 1130. It's either me First or my second. cat. It's it's First. it's. <laughs> I, I do I, I do have an appointment with the vet the same day, so I, I'm gonna have to check my book to make sure. But uh, no, it's uh it's a single shot dose actually. Oh, um, yeah, Johnson, so, Johnson. Jo- Johnson and Johnson. So I will um I'll be all set after after Friday. I might be a little under the weather, but uh, it's okay. It'll just... give it'll it'll give you a little peace of mind. Yeah, exactly. Peace of mind. That's and and that's and that's really what I'm looking for too, because you know. You know, just the history, we know. I mean, it, there's a reason why we don't deal with, with polio anymore. There's right. a reason why the Black Plague isn't around. It's because of vaccines, and I'm eager to get mine, and I hope everyone else does too. Yeah, it's going to give you a lot of peace of mind. Very smart. Well, that's it for this week, uh, Ira. Tell people where they can find you on Twitter. Oh, on Twitter, social media. No, stay off of Twitter, Ira. Stay <laughs> off of it. And I, Kaufman76, and I do not weigh in politically, Clark. Ian? I do not. I do not. I am uh, at IGLEN31, and neither do I. (laughs) I am at Clark Judge, TOF, and you know what? Three's a crowd, and I'm joining this crowd. And Ian, tell them where they can find us as a group on Twitter. Of course, at the iTest for two, all letters, no numbers. And Ira, if we don't hear from our listeners there, where can they find us next week? On the exceedingly popular iTest for two. You are correct, sir, as always. So there are no excuses for anyone not to be here. We'll see you then. 